This is episode 50 with Julie Bogart, author of the book, The Brave Learner. And today we're talking about how you can raise brave learners and find magic in homeschooling, learning, and life. Because everyone now has had a taste of having their children home learning, even if it's remote learning, which is not really the kind of homeschooling that homeschoolers by choice would do. What parents are experiencing for the first time, I would say, is a greater share of responsibility in determining what that education ought to be for their kids. And I think there will be plenty who will send their kids back to school for sure. Mm -hmm. But there will also be a lingering effect on the values of education that we are learning from this. And it was actually because of a couple of teachers I had in public school that I really wanted to homeschool because I didn't see the modern school system being permitted to let teachers teach the way they really want to teach. Hey moms, are you tired of being tired? Or maybe yelling at your kids? Or maybe you need to know how to get your strength back postpartum? Or learn to manage your stress trying to do it all? Or just to become a more confident mom? If so, then welcome to Citrus Love, keeping motherhood inspired. I'm Christiane Bégin, a mother of two, sharing inspiring conversations with wonderful people on how we can be mentally and physically stronger moms, and also including freshly squeezed ideas, a little bit of fun, so you can learn how to find balance and also how to raise strong, caring, confident kids in today's world. So if you're ready, let's get started. A better investment of time is to consider how your kids learn rather than what to teach them. Learning is made possible not by better programs, but by better experiences. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Citrus Love Podcast. I just read you a quote from today's guest and author, Julie Bogart, and quote from her book, Brave Learner, and how you can bring more magic and adventure back in your children's life without forcing them to learn. Okay, so Julie speaks about the importance of us schooling, which is homeschool in a way that suits you your family, your life, and most important in how we're educating our kids, even when we don't realize we are doing it. How to have kids that are receptive to learning. Maybe your kids are not very much into that the school topic. So how to get them to be more receptive. And she gives us a couple tips on how you can implement that. I had to ask her thoughts about teachers these days and how they're teaching and how this pandemic has changed how our kids are being educated and how you can help them Yes, we're going to talk about homeschooling your kids or being forced to homeschool. And I thought this might be helpful if we had an episode talking about it. Because honestly, for me, thinking about homeschooling uh, gives me a little bit of mom anxiety. And let alone if you're a full-time working parent, mother outside of the home, and then you need to homeschool your kids, then I can't imagine the pressure you must be feeling. Hey, I'm not a teacher. How am I supposed to teach my kids? So this episode is for you and that learning is not just something you read in a textbook at school. I'm sure you've heard that before, but today's guest, oh my gosh, her book, it just blew me away. The examples she shares and and just doing some silly things you wouldn't expect are actually teaching them quite a lot. What is actually homeschooling? We're going to talk about all of that. So who is Julie? She has homeschooled her five children for 17 years and learned a lot along the way, which she put in her book, which I totally loved and would recommend to any parent, even if you're not homeschooling, which I'll link everything in the show notes on the website, citruslove.com slash episode 50. So make sure to check that out. She 
She's the founder of Homeschooling Alliance, which she just changed to the Brave Learner, which supports homeschooling parents through coaching and teaching, has been doing it for over 20 years. So she considers herself today a writing coach, also the creator of the award-winning Innovative Brave Writer Program, which teaches your kids and you how to write language arts and has been teaching this to thousands of families each year. She grew up in Southern California, lived in France, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, lived in Morocco for four years, even had her first child there, earned a master's in theology. Today, she lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and she enjoys having her tea every morning. And she is choosing to see a child's desire to play as evidence of their desire to learn. So I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. If you do enjoy this episode, please leave a review for the podcast. Three, four, five star review. Leave a comment. Go to iTunes or scroll down on the app on your phone. After the episode list, you'll have leave a review button, which you can press and leave your comment. If you have any more questions, feel free to reach out to me. Contact citruslove at gmail.com. I do love reading your emails and getting your feedback and comments. So with that, let's listen in on our conversation. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for being on the Citrus Love podcast today to talk about motherhood and homeschooling kids and your book, The Brave Learner. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It sounds great. The reason I wanted to do an episode about about this topic is with everything that's been going on and hearing parents that need to do some part-time homeschooling for their kids. And it, it seems to be bringing a lot of anxiety for parents. So, hey, why not go to someone who knows what it, homeschooling is, but also how to make it more fun? I have to say, when I picked up your book, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I love, love, love your book. It was so good. It was so good. And you shared practical ideas and tools and and also applies to uh, parenting, like how we parent our kids and when we're doing activities with them at home. I would definitely recommend it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the name of the book is The Brave Learner, and it was a real delight to write it. It's sort of a compendium of my experience with other homeschool families, but then also with my own kids. I Mm -hmm. have five adult kids who live all over the world, and I exclusively homeschooled them for 17 years, and then some of them went to part-time high school, some went to full-time, one of them didn't go. And we had all different uh, aspirations and outcomes in their adult lives, and so Mm -hmm. kind of put all those principles together with practical support ideas, um, actual things you can do with your kids in a book. And it's been nice to see it well-received. I was actually homeschooled for a year when I was in third grade. Amazing. Was, yeah. So my mom, who who used to be a, a teacher, and she was uh, at home with us. And I'm like, I don't want to go to school next year. I just don't like it. So she homeschooled my brother and I for a year. And <laughs> after that year, I said, I want to go back to school because I had too many distractions at home. And I ended up not following the curriculum, like according to the classic one. And you have to do this mm. on this day. So it just, it wasn't fun. But let's talk about what you were doing right before you, you had kids and you started homeschooling. So I, um, I found out about homeschooling before I was even married, before I had ever been pregnant. I didn't even know what it was. And the person who shared it with me, uh, it was in 1984. And he asked me if I was going to homeschool, you know, future children I might have. And I famously said back home, what? I had never heard the word. And it was <laughs> still very unknown in the United States in the 1980s. And then he explained to me this vision of tailor-made education and being home with your kids. And even before I had children, that sounded like a cool idea to me. At the time, I was planning to live abroad. And so my husband and I moved to Morocco. Uh, I did have my first child there. And I got to know a lot of homeschooling families because the other expatriates decided to home educate rather than putting their kids
kids either in Moroccan schools or international schools. Mm -hmm. So I had all these examples that were living in front of me. And by the time I had children, I decided, hey, I think I really want to do this. So I did that full time for a couple of years. But at the same time, I was already a writer. I was writing just for pleasure, not really for income. And I decided that I could actually pursue publication while I was raising my kids. I had seen my mother do it. She's written over 70 books and was a published freelance writer when I was a child. And so it just seemed like a logical, you know, side gig that I could do while I was homeschooling. And it very quickly snowballed into, I was a um, senior editor of a quarterly industry publication. I was ghostwriting for a well-known person in our community, um, in our extended community across the globe, actually. Um, and I worked in freelance uh, editing. I did people's books that they were self-publishing. I helped doctoral students get their dissertations prepared for defense. So I did all kinds of different kinds of writing during those years, but it was all sort of woven in around homeschooling. Homeschooling was really my priority. Hmm. And you say that in your book that you have to be brave to learn a new way to see education and to execute it, and that the gift we can give ourselves is permission to experiment with education. You kind of started off seeing parents that were already experimenting with how they were educating their kids. Can you talk more about how parents are doing it when they're at home? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, really the woman who I considered my homeschool mentor, Dottie, she lived in the same condo sort of units. We lived across from each other in separate balconies. We had known each other in Morocco and both moved back to the States at the same time. And of course, everybody's first brush with homeschooling is to do what your mother did, go mm -hmm. and get a traditional curriculum with textbooks and try and execute daily lessons. Mm -hmm. But very quickly, if you continue in that way, you discover what you discovered as a child, which is, this is a little tedious. This doesn't really make me want to stay at the kitchen table when I've got a dog to play with and my dolls upstairs and a board game for my mm -hmm. siblings, right? So what we discovered early on is that education was more about these immersive experiences and giving our children a really rich opportunity to use their bodies as well as their minds. So we read aloud each day, but we did as many things as we could outside. We used uh, implements and tools whenever we could. I, I remember when we were doing sort of an indigenous people's study, we learned all about the different weaving patterns for various rugs that were from that those different populations. We drew a map that got rid of the United States, but just showed where the indigenous peoples lived before there were states. And so that was our way of exploring. It wasn't just reading in a book and taking a test on information. We were trying to be as tactile and invested as possible. And we even visited locations. I lived in Southern California at the time that were, you know, historical sites that represented Native Americans. And I think that's the kind of education you can give your kids, right? Mm -hmm. We would have parties. I remember we studied birds and we did a birding party with all their friends. Uh, we tried different implements for how to eat different kinds of foods. We did a dissection of a chicken like the kind of chicken that you cook for dinner, a big one. <laughs> we just took it apart and looked at where all the shafts of the feathers came out and how the skin covered the muscles and the way the joints were fashioned. You know, these are things that we talk about in a textbook, but when you're doing them viscerally, the part my kids remember the most from that experience is we coated their hands in Crisco and then we dipped their hands in a bucket of water with all ice cubes. And then we would take the hand without the Crisco and dip it in the same bucket. And you could see instantly that one hand got freezing cold and the other one stayed surprisingly warm. That was how we learned how ducks and birds can be floating around on this freezing water in the Arctic or in these Northern you know, places like where I live in the lake and not get cold because mm. they have so much fat protecting them. So it's that kind of education that I discovered that homeschooling was really capable of delivering. 
Mm-hmm. And just listening, it, I mean, I would have loved to be a child in your cl- in your home uh, school. But how much work does it take to prepare everything, all the activities, and and where did you get all the ideas? Were you following some curriculums that you would modify, or you just had yes. these brilliant ideas? Yeah, no, that's such a fabulous question because I think a lot of times we assume that a good teacher is just inundated or internally able to generate ideas from scratch all day, every day. And that's not true. Even in schools, teachers are doing research and looking at resources and making decisions. It has to be your passion. In other words, it's not enough to say you want to homeschool. You have to care about it. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I did is I read lots of books I was a subscriber to Family Fun Magazine, which had all kinds of activities and parties that would go with sort of school themes. And so I used a lot of their suggestions. I also had one curriculum that was sort of a kinesthetic curriculum. It was all built around active learning as opposed to just sedentary learning. All of those combined to give us ideas. But even more, I formed a small group with five other families and we used to meet, the mothers did once a month for brunch on a Saturday morning. And we would make a learning plan for the year together. So we'd say, okay, each of these 10 months, we're going to pick a different theme for each month. And then each family is going to host a learning party each of the months. So each mother, there were five of us. So each of us were responsible for two parties. We usually did them in the evening or on the weekend so that the dads or other spouses could be involved. And we would do activities at home building up to those parties. So the collaboration helped us be creative. It wasn't just me sitting by myself in a room. I had books, I had magazines, and I had friends. Today, you have the internet. Yeah. You have the resources beyond the resources. It might even be overwhelming at times based on how much is available. But I'm here to tell you that even with just a few resources, your own ingenuity and creativity will kick into gear once you immerse yourself in those worlds. Mm. In the book, you talk about everyday magic in homeschool, enchantment, magic learning. I mean, you you share tons of examples in mm. your book, but let's talk about the four forces. I wanted to talk about that, the four forces of an enchanted education. The first two you say, surprise and mystery, are good with young kids. Uh, talk about those two. Yeah, so one of the things that creates what I call an epiphany of learning, that aha moment, the solar plexus, you know, where you're like, oh, I get it. What creates that is ownership. It's a feeling that what I just learned is meaningful and valuable to me personally. And too often when we're in sort of a testing style of education, what we're looking for is for a child to repeat, restate, recite, whatever those points are that a teacher or someone else has chosen for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've had this experience of studying for a test, taking the test and getting even a good grade on it. And then two weeks later, if your teacher asked you to take that same test, you'd feel like, oh my gosh, I couldn't possibly get as good a grade. That's because you haven't yet taken the information all the way into your body and owned it as a personal resource to you. So what I discovered when I was working with children, especially my own, but oh, lots of kids. We've worked with over 100,000 families in my company, Brave Writer. And what we notice is that kids are very receptive to learning when they get surprised, when they're taken off guard, when they see something that is unexpected. You know, if you have a child who is sitting at the table and they're supposed to be doing handwriting and suddenly a bird they've never seen before flies to the bird feeder, they're going to like look up and be curious about it and even ask you, do you know what it is? Because it's a surprise. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what we miss out on is capitalizing on surprise. We start right away with road information. We're going to learn how to add. Adding is taking two numbers, two amounts, and putting them together and getting a new one. Here's an example. And we take Mm -hmm. all the surprise out of it. But what would happen if you wanted to teach addition to a young child and you put a bunch of jelly beans on the table And you just started grouping them in front of your child without saying a word. You pull over two here and three here, and then you put them together, and then you set them here, and then you you grab three and three, and you do the same thing, and your child's like, what are you doing? 
and you just say, well, see if you can make new groupings. I wonder if you could make a bigger grouping than I'm making with two groups. And you start turning it into kind of an experience that is pointing towards the thing you want to teach, but without being explicit about it. You startle your child into learning when they feel like they don't know where it's going, when there isn't a predictable outcome, when they have meaningful participation. One of the suggestions I make in my book, for instance, is something I call clearing the coffee table. So imagine your kids go to bed tonight and while they're in bed asleep, that coffee table that has the remote control and the game and the iPad and just clear the whole thing off. And what would happen if you put something new on that table, like pickup sticks or jacks or binoculars and a field guide or a new board game or knitting needles and a ball of yarn or a puzzle? What if you just left these mysterious items just sitting on the coffee table? And in the morning when your kids get up and you're in the kitchen making breakfast, one, two, three of them come down the stairs and they discover this item that wasn't there before. Just by virtue of not announcing it, of it being new, of it being sort of on display where it can be found, you have just stimulated a learning moment because they they're going to want to open it or touch it or use it or discover what it does. Even if it's not what it does yet, maybe they take the knitting needles and they start stabbing <laughs> the, the pillows <laughs> on your couch. I don't know. But the point is what you're doing is you are inviting them through this mystery the mysteriousness of the new object, mm -hmm. the surprise of being you know, ignited by something novel that they haven't seen before. And I think if we take that attitude towards learning in general, if before we teach something, we ask, what is the inherent surprise or mystery in this task? We'll get a lot closer to drawing the interest of our children, let alone the reten retention. Mm -hmm. Is this something you did quite often or only when you saw that your some of your kids weren't interested or didn't catch on or were bored with the maybe the theme? So you added that according to how they felt? Yes. Okay. I, obviously, it stops being surprising if you do it every day. Surprise yeah. means unexpected. Mm -hmm. So, but one of the things that you can do, for instance, uh, one of the habits that we had in our family, kids woke up whenever they woke up. We didn't have a set time that we started homeschool. We wanted everyone to get the full amount of sleep. That's one of the benefits of not going to a public school or a private school. So when they woke up, they would come downstairs. And during that first half hour of being awake, there was no pressure on them. So those were times when I could set out a new Lego set or, you know, some kind of modeling clay. And that could go on for days or several weeks. And they would look forward to that each day during that half hour time. So they would come downstairs. There might be a cookie sheet with modeling clay. They start playing with the modeling clay while I'm making breakfast and listening to the radio. And then after a half hour or so, I'd be like, okay, time for breakfast, put the clay away. And it would go away till the next day. And that same item would come out the next day. Rather than it just being around all the time, mm -hmm. it became your warm-up in the morning, this mm -hmm. Lego set, that modeling clay, those pickup sticks. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I think so often what we have in families is everything's available and all of it's hidden. We have closets and cabinets and uh, drawers and all these amazing Ikea cubby holes, right? <laughs> and so everything's available but they can't see any of it. Their imaginations are never sparked. The telescope is, you know, only allowed to come out under supervision. The microscope is only during science hour. The knitting needles are only when mother's here to teach you. And we miss out on a lot of opportunities for kids to be self-directed because they physically cannot even see what's available and nobody has made what's available attractive. So that's a little bit about surprise and mystery. There are other ways to use it. One of the most surprising practices you can try with your children right away, and this has nothing to do with games or anything that you purchase, and that is jot down the words your kids are saying spontaneously. So if a child comes up to you with a spontaneous moment of self-expression, telling you the story of how the dog was chasing the squirrel in the backyard, you're going to just grab a sheet of paper and a pencil, might even be the back of an envelope, and start writing down their exact words. Now, your kids are going to be surprised by this behavior. They've never seen you jot down their words while they're speaking before. 
And what I want you to say in that moment is when they say, what are you doing, mom or dad? This is so good. I don't want to forget it. So I'm writing it down. Keep going. And start capturing this very lively, animated, spontaneously offered language in writing. Later that night at the dinner table with the family gathered, I want you to pull that little envelope or piece of scratch paper out and say to the whole family, to grandma, to dad, to whoever's gathered, you know, Seth was telling me the most amazing story of Rocky chasing a squirrel in the backyard. And I was worried I'd forget it. So I wrote it down. And I just want to read you what he said. Read that language back to this interested audience. And now you've just used surprise to catalyze interest in writing. Mm. Because for the first time, your child is going to experience themselves as a writer without it having anything to do with spelling or punctuation. They will know that their pure thoughts and ideas deserve the written word, deserve to be on a piece of paper and read to people. That's what I mean by surprise. Start thinking about how can I deliver to my child that delightful reaction of, oh my gosh, this would be amazing. This is amazing. This connects with me personally. Mm, Yeah. Because here's what you can do after you've shared it. The magic of writing it down is that it is their exact words and you can keep rereading it. I usually recommend taking that writing and tossing it in the library basket so that each time you sit down to read like a picture book, you'll also pull out this piece of writing that you transcribe. That's your child's. So you can, you know, finish reading the picture book, make the way for the ducklings. And then you turn to your child. Oh, look what author Seth wrote. Let's read his story too. (laughs) And pretty soon your kids start feeling like authors. My daughter, Johanna, she was into it. She wanted me to make little books for her to fill out every day. And what she would do is she would draw pictures in these little books. And then later in the day, I would just transcribe whatever words were the captions according to her. We would just go picture by picture and she would tell me what was in that picture. I would write it down and then I would read those books to her at bedtime. So for her, from a very early age, she saw herself as a writer long before she could read or physically write. Mm, That's interesting. So it makes it more personal and gives them the confidence earlier to to actually enjoy writing as opposed to just being corrected on how we write. Correct. And part of it is, this is what writing is. Transcription is a very low-level skill. Our kids could hire secretaries for the rest of their lives. My dad is a career lawyer, and for the first 50 years of his career, he never typed or handwrote a single thing. He used a dictaphone, and his secretary typed everything. Who knows if my dad could spell? I mean, I assume he can. He's a lawyer. But Mm -hmm. do you see what I'm saying? We put so much value on transcription when it's the fairly recent phenomenon that all people transcribe their own writing all the time. In the professions until computers, they simply didn't. And my dad only learned to type 10 years ago. So I really want to put that out there because what you're actually showing your child is that writing is about the thoughts. The transcription is up for grabs. And we do want to teach them transcription so that they have ease of use. They can always type their own ideas. We're in a computer age where everyone has to communicate that way at some level. But we certainly don't want to over-dramatize its importance. The key to good writing are good thoughts. And starting to honor those, even before a child can read or write well, shows the child that they have valuable things to express, regardless of their spelling skills. And that's the most important message they could be getting. Mm, That's amazing. I love that. I love that. Thinking outside the the box with, yeah, how kids can learn. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the other two forces. You say there's risk and adventure, which are especially good for tweens and teens. Yes, exactly. So we have surprise and mystery and risk and adventure. And of course, these are going to bleed back and forth, right? It's pretty risky for a five-year-old to learn to ride a two-wheeled bike. And that feels like an adventure. Meanwhile, (laughs) you know, surprise and mystery are the heart of romance. And that's very teenager, right? So, Mm -hmm. So there's not a firm boundary. But what I've noticed is this. Those little surprises and mysteries, you know, baking a cake, watching wet batter turn into something solid, that's very mysterious and surprising to an eight-year-old, not so much to a (laughs) 16-year-old. What teenagers are looking for are experiences without adult supervision. They're looking for a chance 
to test the waters of emerging adulthood. And what I mean by that is they don't want to find out if they can't do it without you. They want to find out they can. And so that means the parent has to take a step backward. And some of what that looks like is sending a kid on a backpacking trip with friends, uh, learning to drive, rock climbing at an indoor gym, becoming a member of a sports team and traveling for tournaments. It means leaving the house. And for homeschoolers, the house is so cozy and homey and it feels so good to parents they sometimes forget that their teens, by the time they're 14, 15, 16, if the house is all they've ever known, it's not interesting anymore. Mm-hmm. It, it no longer feels like a challenge. It doesn't even feel cozy. It just feels like overly familiar. So to help teens, I'm always recommending giving them performance opportunities, sports, a chance to work, and going places where you, the parent, will not be present. And one thing I loved about what you shared, and I quote you, when we give energy to the things our kids love, they have satisfaction and happiness to draw from that when they need to work hard to what is less inspiring and that we should make base for risky thinking. Like, can you talk about that? You had, I know you had your daughter who loved reading (laughs) Pride and Prejudice and she talked about that, the idea that was a little bit riskier. Yes. um, So you're talking about the BHAG, which is the Big, Hairy, Audacious Goals. Um, This comes from Business Language by Jim Collins. And the whole notion of a Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal is that it gives you a vision of something very practical and concrete that you could achieve, but that also inspires you. And so for my kids, the question I posed to them in their teens was, if you had all the money you needed, and all the time you needed, what would you be doing right now? And interestingly, when I asked that question, my kids had some pretty awesome answers. My daughter, Johanna, had gotten very fascinated with Pride and Prejudice because I was really obsessed with the six-part series by A&E BBC. And she started becoming interested in vintage dance and told me she wanted to host her own Jane Austen era ball doing vintage (laughs) dance. She was like 11 or 12. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way I'll be able to do this. But I realized that was a pretty awesome dream. Like it would be a real mistake after you've asked this big question to then say, oh, well, no, that's not what I meant. I meant something smaller scale, something less important. (laughs) And so I immediately got online and I did one of the things parents can do for their kids, which is good research. And I found a vintage dance company in Cincinnati where we live. So I contacted them and admitted that we had no money. Usually a parent can pay for lessons. We did not have money for lessons, even the $8 a week. And so I asked if there was any work we could do as a bartering exchange for being a part of this troupe. And to my amazement and delight, they said that if we distributed flyers for them each week on a Monday in the local neighborhood, they would waive the weekly fee. Mm. So I drove all five kids because at the time my kid's dad was teaching at college on the Wednesday nights. So I had to drive all five kids to this dance company My daughter had to dance with her older brother because they have to be about the same height. So she couldn't dance with an adult, which was good. So the two of them would dance and then I would do coloring books and, you know, cuddling with my other three kids. And we would just sit in this big dance hall watching all these adults and my two kids who were junior high age learning these vintage dances. And they did that all year. And then at the end, there was a big ball. And one of the women loaned Johanna a period accurate gown to wear. And so she got to have the full experience and I didn't have to produce it from scratch. Mm -hmm. So just because your child says, oh, let's put on our own ball, that isn't necessarily what needed to happen, but she wanted to attend a ball. And that is what happened. We were able to make that experience happen for her. So that's a good example of risk and adventure for my tweens. Yeah. Yeah, I love that because so often we're quick to say, no, 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 we can't, we can't for many reasons. But you illustrated how, first of all, if you didn't have the money, there's different uh, ways, resources 
And I'm sure that your kids remembered that time <laughs> that it stayed as a good memory, those big dreams, because I know in the book you shared other ones for your other kids. Yeah. And I think, I think so often we're quick to assume that we know the outcome before we begin. Mm -hmm. One of the stories that was so moving to me that I included in the book came from the blog called Humans of New York. Uh, this little boy who lived in Manhattan in an apartment with his mother was dreaming of owning horses and riding horses. And of course, what little kid is going to be able to buy a horse and, you know, stable it in Manhattan? Mm -hmm. But this mother took his heart at his word. And he wanted to sell like some of his little toys to start saving money to buy a horse. Well, sure enough, they went down to Central Park. The mother laid out a blanket with a bunch of toys, each one priced at about a dollar. And the guy who is the photographer for Humans of New York happened to see them and took their picture and shared their story. And out of that came all these people who wanted to help this little boy have a writing experience. So a fundraiser occurred. And the next thing you know, he and his family got sent to a dude ranch, I think in Montana, for a week where he could indulge and immerse himself in this horse experience that he was so looking forward to. The reason I shared that story is even though it has this sort of outrageous ending, right, where somebody came along and could make it possible for this to come true, it would never have happened if his mother had said, silly you, we live in Manhattan, we can't have horses. She also did not rescue him. She let him sell his toys. She <laughs> accompanied him on his vision and allowed him to actually participate in his own idea of how he would make this come true. And that's what allowed the good to result. So I think sometimes we hear stories and we think that would never happen to me. The only reason stories don't happen to us is we don't take those first steps. If we do that a lot of times, some amazing stories will happen to you. Mm, I love that. I love that. Uh, one thing you talked about a lot in your book, and you already mentioned it, is co collaboration. When you have your child, you're trying to teach them something and they're not feeling motivated to learn. You say that sometimes they need collaborators. So how can you as a parent become a collaborator with your child? The good news is parents are already good at this and they do it so naturally. If you think of what you did the day that you had a baby and you've got this newborn and you didn't know what the heck to do, no one told you, you started learning how to help that kid learn from the moment that baby was placed in your arms. You started figuring out their cues for hunger, when to change their diapers, what clothing they need to wear based on the temperature in the house or outside. And all mm -hmm. of those decisions that you are making, you're talking to your child, you're building habits, you're showing that child how to live in the world. We do it so naturally, we don't even think of it as teaching. By the time your child is six months to a year, you start feeding it solid foods. You're showing them how we do it. There's usually a bowl or a plate. There's usually, you know, gentle spoon or they use their hands until they can use a spoon. And all of this is done without really very big expectations or very concrete steps. By the time your child is five, that child is fluent in their native language, sometimes two languages. And those kids know how to put on clothes, how to brush their teeth. And all of it's been because you've just been talking and modeling and helping, talking and modeling and helping, talking and modeling and helping. And then for some strange reason, the moment we introduce the word school, parents completely lose their way. They think, <laughs> Am I allowed to help? Is it okay if I model? Mm -hmm. Oh, will it be the child's work if I give a suggestion? And yet when you're teaching your child to tie their shoes, you don't just do it in front of them once and then walk away. And if they ask you for help, say, well, I won't know it's really you who tied your shoes unless I leave you to it. Mm -hmm. Because over time, we become more and more independent. And the oxymoronic truth is this, the better you collaborate with your child, the sooner they will be independent. But if you withdraw your support prematurely, they continue to rely on you because they've never gotten over that hump that lets them know, oh, now I can do it myself. Mm. You know, if you think about how your child learned to walk is a perfect example. They let go of the coffee table and balance and then sit down and then they let go and balance. Pretty soon they're standing, but they can't really walk unless they're holding your hand or they're balancing with the coffee table. So they do that for a little while and then pretty soon they start letting go and they can make it several steps across the room. 
pretty soon they're walking. Do you ever carry your child again once he or she knows how to walk? Of course. Do you ever use a stroller once your child knows how to walk? Of course. Do you put your child in the grocery cart after your child knows how to walk? Yes. Why? Because they're still learning to walk. Their legs are short. They get tired easily. It is not a skill they have built up. And yet somehow we are well aware that we are not preventing our child from a lifetime of successful independent walking by accommodating their weakness, their failing energy, when we want to move faster than they're capable of. We just swoop in and help without even mm -hmm. thinking about it. The same can be done for adding. The same can be done for reading. The same can be done for any lesson. Mm. Same kind of support. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Wow. One thing you shared, I thought it was fun about how to gauge to do the homeschooling every day is to use weather icons for your family. Can you talk about that? I just thought it was fun. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. And I love that you brought that up. I don't think I've ever been asked about that chapter on a podcast. So one of the moms that is in our homeschool community shared with me that she had listened to a talk I gave, and I wrote most of the talk in the book, and it was about dysfunctional families. Because unfortunately, a lot of times children get blamed for not performing at a level that they quote unquote should because the parents are actually creating havoc in the home. So we think it's the child's fault that they are resistant to homework or they don't do their math lesson without getting distracted. When really, maybe there is an underlying dysfunction or unhealthiness in the family and the child's reacting to that. Yeah. Maybe the child overheard dad yell at mom or saw that mom was really stressed and had already cried this morning over something with, you know, a phone call. And the child is carrying this internal sense of things aren't right into the lesson. And then we blame the child for not being able to concentrate. So in this chapter and in this lecture that I had given, I invited parents to reflect on the atmosphere of the family and what it felt like to live in this family day by day. And this one mother explained to me much later that when she was flying home on the plane from that talk, she started admitting to herself that their family had gotten into a pattern of yelling and it had become toxic. Mm. And she did not want her children to grow up in a household of people who yell. So she pulled out a calendar and she created weather icons for each of the ways that she could see happening in her family. So like thunderclouds for yelling, sunshine for when they were peaceful, rain for when people were emotional. And as she tracked each day, she would put this icon on her calendar to try and take data from the family experience and analyze it. Instead of just guessing, are we really an angry family? Let's find out how often we yell. Maybe I think we don't yell very much and it turns out we yell every day and I just never took the time to notice. Mm -hmm. And she discovered to her chagrin that their family was in a very unhealthy pattern. So she used these weather icons both as data collection, but as an accountability tool. So as she would start to feel herself rev up to get angry, she'd remind herself that she was going to have to record this icon at the end of the day, <laughs> you know? And it just started building for her an awareness yeah. of how to create that healthy culture. It was something she did at the end of the day? Yes. So it was a way for her to track the emotional experience, the, the felt experience of living in their house. You know, the tendency we always have is to blame our kids for being lazy, being willful, being mm -hmm. uh, not working hard enough. You know, we always think the reason they're being squirrely is because of something in them. And what I invited these parents to consider is perhaps it's the conditions you're living in. Perhaps the house feels chaotic. Perhaps there's a parent who's angry all the time. Perhaps there's a parent who's dealing with depression. Perhaps there's just a pandemic raging and everybody is stressed out right? It doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean that somebody's bad, but if we don't take into account the emotional conditions of the family, and then we just hoist all these expectations on our children, it's pretty unfair to hold them accountable because that's asking them to do more than is humanly possible. Mm -hmm. You know, during the pandemic, for instance, a lot of parents were recognizing, oh no, I have to work from home and I'm having a hard time concentrating and I feel sort of this generalized anxiety and I'm nervous and edgy. Well, why wouldn't our kids feel the same exact ways? And then we expect them to sit down and concentrate on two pages of math 
when maybe during the pandemic, they can only do one because they're like us. Concentration is shot. The world doesn't feel ordinary anymore. And they are struggling to overcome just like we are. Mm -hmm. So she used that calendar as a way to track those emotional currents in the family to hold themselves accountable to do better. Yeah. And you said what works well for maybe you have one child that's very studious and likes more structure, but then you have another one that um, doesn't like structure as much. In this situation, how do you teach the lessons? Is it like really personalized to each child? Because you had five. I mean, I would think just the entire homeschooling would be a lot of work, different different age group. Talk about that when your kids do not learn the same way. How do you incorporate all that? Yeah, uh, it, that is the biggest challenge. I had five kids and two of them were very much those sort of non-traditional learners. They preferred going at their own pace, being interested in their own stuff. Uh, one of them has ADHD, so he was a little hyper on top of it. And then the other three, well, let's see, out of the other three, two of them were more traditional. They liked having a schedule. They liked knowing what was expected in a day. They loved competing with their peers. They wanted to be able to check boxes off of things they accomplished. And then my last child, she was probably, you know, the last child you've learned everything. She was my most natural learner. She could do both. She could do expectations and a checklist, or she could spend hours pursuing her own interests and really being productive. Mm -hmm. And I would say that really, it's all a learning curve. There's no solution that I'm going to offer you today that's going to fix it for tomorrow. But what I will tell you is this, be attentive, rotate through your children. If you have a child who's really puzzling to you right now, put the other kids kind of on autopilot while you work it out with that child or vice versa. Let the one who's really struggling have some free time to just do what's pleasurable for them and mm -hmm. put your energy into the more structured learners while you sort of mull over ideas for that child. And sometimes it even helps to rotate days. So you might spend one day with your unstructured learners and then the next day with your more structured ones. And that's okay. This is homeschool. There's no requirement to do six subjects per child every day. I have cousins that have homeschooled their kids and it was always the more earthy, organic eating um, type right, of parents. Right. And I think for a lot of parents that have never homeschooled and have never even considered homeschooling would have the same idea that parents who homeschool or are very specific with how their kids are being educated. So they want to do it you have your homeschool alliance. You've worked with tons of parents. Who are these homeschooling parents? Yeah, that's such a great question. So I'll give you a little history lesson about homeschool. Back in the very beginning of home education, there was a pretty good cross-section of parents who were rejecting the increasingly standardized testing philosophy of schools and were wanting this more curated curriculum tailored to students, right? Something that would be mm -hmm. more personalized education. And it, it, they came from all walks of life and all different religious backgrounds, but it was illegal. So, and it started in California, of course, fitting the crunchy granola theme right to the T. <laughs> um, and, and so this cross-section of parents started petitioning the government to get the right to, because their kids were called truant, right? In those days, if you kept them home, it meant that you were truant to school and you could be arrested. So, So parents would hide their homeschooling, keep the curtains closed until the buses drop kids off before they'd let them play, all that kind of stuff. But then religious homeschoolers came along, and these were parents for whom the sort of secularization of the public school system offended them. They didn't like that prayer had been taken out of the schools, for instance. And so they started homeschooling to combine the typical education with a religious education. And these Christian homeschoolers banded together and got their own lawyers and were able to argue effectively that homeschooling was a right on the grounds of religious freedom, that they should have mm -hmm. the right as parents to educate their children according to whatever religious perspective they wanted. And so as a result, religious homeschooling, Christian in particular, took off like a wildfire. They had the infrastructure to promote it. You know, they had churches and Bible studies and small group meetings and women's Bible studies. And so whereas secular people were not as well connected with each other and did not have institutions, this is all before the internet, churches did. And now they had this religious exemption for education, which meant they weren't truant. 
So homeschooling by and large during the 80s and 90s was religious all the way into the 2000s. But with the advent of universal legalization of homeschooling across all 50 states, uh, and I'm speaking America now, I don't really know the history in Canada or mm -hmm. some of the other countries, but this is what happened in the states. Um, once that took place and the internet was available, now more and more people wanted to home educate. And I think parents are sick of this endless testing and regurgitation rather than sort of the stimulation of quality learning and experiences for kids. So homeschooling today is incredibly diverse. We still have very conservative Christians as the largest segment in the United States, but the secular movement of homeschooling is growing at the fastest rate of any of the segments. And there are diverse religious backgrounds now. You have Muslim and Jewish and Catholic home education communities that are sizable in the United States. What I will tell you is this, the pandemic has changed everything again. Because everyone now has had a taste of having their children home learning, even if it's remote learning, which is not really the kind of homeschooling that homeschoolers by choice would do. But even with that, even with the remote learning, what parents are experiencing for the first time, I would say, is a greater share of responsibility in determining what that education ought to be for their kids. They're not just delegating it and then shaming their kids into doing it. They have witnessed what goes on, what is being taught, and they're starting to have opinions about it. And they're starting to interrogate the method of education. And I think there will be plenty who will send their kids back to school for sure. Mm -hmm. But there will also be a lingering effect on the values of education that we are learning from this pandemic moment. And so far, it's just been nothing but good for homeschooling. We'll mm -hmm. see if that continues. I hope yeah. so. Well, this is something I've been thinking about because my son, he's supposed to start kindergarten next September, but we're in a hot zone in Canada near Montreal for COVID. So I'm trying to educate myself to see how yes. I'll have to do it. But I feel like you're doing homeschooling. It's your full-time job. How was it for you having five kids? How much time did you allow to actually doing the lessons or doing the activities yeah. related to it? Just so the mother listening can yes. really visualize how, how it is. Well, and interestingly you would be shocked at how much time is wasted in school because there's a lot of waiting, waiting for people to finish, waiting for the thing to boot up, waiting for the teacher to take role. There's a lot of time that isn't devoted to actual lessons or learning. So what most homeschoolers discover is you can pretty much finish the day by noon. It's very easy to spend about three hours in the morning with five kids. We would use the afternoons for things like a nature walk or a science experiment or a history reenactment or something that was more pleasurable and less schooly. Mm -hmm. But the th first three hours of the day, we could easily get done with reading aloud, handwriting, some grammar, doing math, maybe a history lesson. I mean, really not a problem. And in terms of preparation, I do recommend doing some prep. I think there's a big, sometimes a controversy around how much preparation to do. I believe in having a spine or some inspiring materials that take some of that heavy lifting off your shoulders, but then the implementation will be up to you. So you do want to spend a little time each week thinking about what you'll cover in what order with which children. And obviously the more kids and more grade levels you have, the more that feels a little daunting. But one of the greatest gifts of homeschooling is family style learning. You know, when we did history, I didn't divide that up by grade level. We did history. We picked a topic in history and we all studied it together and each child performed at whatever level they were. So if we were doing the American Civil War, some kids could read books to themselves. Some needed to be read to. Some could write a report. Some could draw a picture. You know, we could all make candles. We could all watch movies, but at least we were all on the same theme. Mm -hmm. And by being on the same theme, we benefited from each other's input at all those different grade levels. So I think there's an illusion that homeschooling is hard because it's just you with all your kids. But teaching in a school is far more challenging. 30 students, one teacher, moving through the space each day. It's, it's completely different. Homeschooling is actually much easier. I'm curious to know, because I have lots of teachers and educators that follow this podcast, how you say that there are better ways of educating kids. 
have you been getting some comments like oh, from, from these, teachers? Yes. <laughs> I'm just this, so, thinking of all my friends that are uh, teachers and I'm like, they must yes. be saying, well, you know, <laughs> I know. I appreciate you bringing that up actually, because I have deep admiration for teachers. And my best learning experiences were in public school. And it was actually because of a couple of teachers I had in public school that I really wanted to homeschool because I didn't see the modern school system being permitted to let teachers teach the way they really want to teach. So first, I just want to say this. If you would let teachers teach the way they've been trained, according to their best instincts, school would not look like it looks. There isn't a teacher listening to me right now who wouldn't much prefer to do hands-on learning with their kids and not preparing them for tests for Common Core or just this recitation endlessly of what the teacher's agenda is. I listen to several educator podcasts because I absolutely love the research being done in the field and I love to hear the solutions teachers think of for problems that are a struggle for me mm -hmm. uh, because they think deeply about education. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has become very clear to me in all these educator spaces is their awareness of the value of personalized learning, making the education space more friendly. You know, there's a whole movement to put sofas in the classroom and plants and to have tables where you are almost like at a dinner table where you're sitting across from each other to promote conversation, a move away from these sort of chairs attached to desks all lined up in a row facing forward. There is a move toward activity in the classroom as opposed to just reading and writing things down. One of the educators I heard on a podcast, she said, it's so hard to get away from drill and kill. And I thought, drill and kill? She, that means educators know that this idea of just drilling through facts until you've killed them, meaning you've mastered <laughs> them, but also killed any interest, they don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. That's not actually what they wish they could do. And, and some of them are just incredibly creative. I was reading through this one book on how to teach history in the classroom in a better methodology. And it was using all these original newspaper clippings and organizing the kids into groups and teaching them debate skills and how to do this sort of critical analysis. It was beautiful. But so often in the classroom then, You've got a teacher who's got this amazing lesson she wants to communicate that's even well-designed, and she has 50 minutes to get it done. 50 minutes. What if your kids would be interested for three hours? Well, you can't do that. You have to move on. And so some of what homeschooling offers is just the opportunity to chase that kind of inventiveness for a little longer with a little more personalization. I'll end with this story about teachers because I, I absolutely love them. I wouldn't want you to take this as a bashing on teachers at all. Uh, I had a teacher in junior high who had been to the Peace Corps, you know, 1971, something like that. And she had been in India and did a whole slideshow, showed us all of India, you know, back before the internet and good television. This slideshow really made a huge impact on me. She wore long skirts, very much a hippie. We lived in California and our school was in Malibu Canyon. So you can picture this vibe. And she wanted to teach us about the Aztecs or the Incas. We are going to make our own pots following the patterns of those groups. So we make these pots following these patterns and then she fires them after we've painted them. And we think, wow, this is the greatest lesson ever. I mean, who doesn't want to make a clay pot and have it fired? So we get them <laughs> back and they're sitting at our, each of our seats and there's a hammer next to them. And she says, all right, now I need you to smash your pots. And we all look at her like, what? Why would I smash this beautiful pot that I just got done making and I'm so proud of? And she's like, I just need you to do it. So of course, once you are given permission to smash something with a hammer, we all went into it with great force and happiness. And we smashed our pots. And then she came around with a box for each of us. And we scooped the broken pieces of the pots into an individual box. And that was the end of that day. The next day we came back to class and she organized us into archeological dig groups. And we went out into the Malibu Canyon behind our, the field behind our school. And she had buried all of our broken pots with cardboard as sedimentary layer indicators. And she gave us tools to dig, to discover, to brush off, and then to identify what sedimentary layer they had been in. And then we brought them back to class and glued them back together and created a museum display. That's an incredible amount of teaching. Mm -hmm. And it's missing in school today. There's just not time. There's no willingness to give a child a hammer. 
or a tool that they could poke each other with, right? We have such a safety fear nowadays. And so school is about the safe exploration of subjects, which means textbooks and writing and in-class discussion and occasional acting out. But whatever happened to digging up Malibu Canyon in search of an archaeological dig, right? It's really changed. <laughs> that's why you've got tons of incredible examples in your books or anyone that's interested. I'll link it Thank with this you. episode. I just have one question. And this one is, is something you mentioned briefly in, at the end of the book. And that's about your relationship while you're now divorced. And the reason I wanted to mention to ask you about this is because I've had so many mothers asking about how to make a marriage or relationship thrive after having kids. And you had mentioned that you took some things for granted. Is there anything you can share about raising kids and having and keeping yeah. that relationship thriving with your partner or a, a lesson you've learned from your experience? Thanks for asking that question. It's always a little emotional for me because I only had one goal when I had babies, and that was to make it to the empty nest with their dad. My parents are divorced, and that happened when I was a young adult, and I hated that I never got to go home to both parents as a child, as an adult. And so I wanted that for my kids, and I wanted that experience for myself of attending a wedding with my husband, and he's the father of my children. So that, that was my steadfast goal. Um, and over the years, we worked at our marriage. We went to therapy even before we were married. We had you know, we're from California. Therapy is just part of our culture. And I very much wanted to have a healthy relationship and we worked on it in various ways. What happened with us, and I won't go into deep detail, but I will give you a little bit of an overview. What happened with us was ultimately an inability to transcend the anger that animated my husband, my then husband's um, way of living. He had a lot of anger. And it was justifiable anger in terms of his upbringing, but it was not justifiable in terms of it being directed at me or the kids. Mm -hmm. And despite working on it, despite years of therapy and books and reading and doing all the things that you should do, I got to a point where it became clear to me that we would all be healthier if we were not living in the same house together. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult very emotionally loaded, painful decision for me to come to. And difficult for him too, of course, and difficult for my kids. There's no question about it. But what I know on this side that I didn't know then is that you're doing damage to your children if you allow for dysfunction and toxic behavior to characterize the emotional landscape of your family. And so for those who are in challenging marriages, it matters to seek help. The kind of help I recommend if you're dealing with someone who is verbally abusive or abusive in any way is not marriage counseling. Marriage counseling is good for people who are functional and basically have goodwill toward each other, but they have communication problems or they have issues in their intimate life. But if you are dealing with um, a power dynamic where the wife is a victim then the best kind or, or one of the partners is a victim. I realize not everybody's married to men. Mm -hmm. if, if somebody is a victim in the marriage relationship, it's important to have your own therapist. And so I often recommend that you go to therapy for yourself. You don't have to end the marriage, but you have to learn how to be a full self in the midst of that repeated victimization because that's the only way you'll get to a point where you can tell whether the marriage is improving and healthy enough to stay or whether you now have to take this healthier version of yourself and leave. And so that would be the advice I'd give. Don't be hoodwinked into marriage therapy if you're a victim. Start with therapy for you. Because unfortunately, marriage therapy for couples that are dealing with violence or emotional abuse, that often becomes another battleground after mm -hmm. you leave the session when you get home. You get attacked for the things you revealed or the way you shared or what the therapist said about you. And what you really need when you're a victim is an ally that is devoted just to you, not to the marriage. Mm. So start there. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I will say just as an addendum, 
this ended up being a really valuable decision for our family. And my ex-husband and I are on excellent terms now. We just talked two days ago for an hour on the phone about how great our kids are. Mm -hmm. And I think he's grown a lot because of it. And I know we all have as well. So it doesn't mean the end. It just means a new beginning. Yeah. So where can listeners find more about your program? So you have the Home, Home Alliance, you have Brave Writers Program. Talk about that quickly and where can mothers connect with you to learn more? Uh, so Brave Writer is my company, bravewriter.com. You can download our seven-day writing blitz for free on the homepage. If you're looking for a taste of how we do writing instruction, you'll see right away it's very kinesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Homeschool Alliance is our homeschool support and coaching community. And we just changed the name to the Brave Learner Home based on the book and sort of the community that has grown around the topics in the book. And you can get to that by going to bravewriter.com and just scrolling down until you see it, click on it. And there's a, an overview of what it is and instructions about how to join. And then we also offer online writing classes. So if you've got kids at home, either because you're homeschooling by choice or by COVID, you might be interested in a three to six week online writing class taught by one of our instructors. And that is also available at bravewriter.com. I'll end with one last question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. So we all know that being a mother, a parent is a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Keeping motherhood inspired, what one thing have you found kept you inspired and energized throughout your mom journey? This will sound counterintuitive, but pursuing <laughs> my own hobbies. <laughs> so the more that I did things that I loved, the better mother I was because we were like all playing all the time. So I learned guitar. I learned how to knit. I learned how to quilt. I became mm -hmm. interested in African violets. I got interested in bird watching. I got interested in baking. Every time I got interested in something, it made me excited to share it with my kids. And of course, they always wanted in on an adult activity. And then I would reciprocate and get excited about theirs. So to me, taking good care of yourself as an awesome adult growing and becoming a great person yourself is the best modeling you can give your kids and also the quickest invitation to involve them. But it also protects you from becoming sort of a dreary disciplinarian. <laughs> Allows you to have stuff to look forward to every day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Citrus Love, Keeping Motherhood Inspired podcast. If you think someone would enjoy to listen to this episode, please share it with them. You can share the link wherever you're listening or go to our website at www.citruslove.com slash episode and the number where you will find the episode as well as all the information about the guests or the specific episode. The best way to get our podcast ranked is by leaving me a review wherever you're listening, two, three, four, five, six stars, whatever you feel reflect podcast. This will not only let me know what needs to be improved as well as what you particularly love. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll get the next episode. And thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye guys. <laughs>